All right, so I cut out the commercial. Um, you can find it goes on for another minute and a half. But I thought that this perfectly captures getting by. Um, I don't think it just relates to moms. I think dads have, we could film our own commercial with some of the struggles. But uh, we get it. The getting by is this as good as it gets, that we're just trying to keep our kids alive, that we're just trying to get through the day. And some days I think the answer is just yes. That's the, the, you throw your arms up and your kids go to bed and you get in your pajamas and you crash. But I don't know about you, but I find February to be a hard month. It's weird because it's the shortest month on the calendar, but my goodness, it just seems to drag on and on and on. And it was actually this time last year that I even um, went into a depression, which I'm still on antidepressants for, but um, it uh, definitely isn't an easy season, whether you're battling anxiety, depression, or you're just battling the winter blues, and you're battling just a really tough season of life. And the Canadian government, for most of Canada, they've actually even realized that it's a tough season to get through, and that's why they implemented Family Day, which we just celebrated last Monday, is that there, there isn't this holiday between Christmas and is it the, the Easter and then the May long weekend. And there's this kind of gap where it's just miserable, it's depressing, it's heavy, and it's tough to get through. So they thought, let's give everyone a long weekend and let's hopefully lift spirits. Because the weather is crummy, it's cold, it's dark, it's dreary. And I'd rather just stay in my sweats and get under a big blanket and watch a movie than go outside for a walk. Uh, it's still pretty dark and gloomy. And all the flu bugs and the colds going around, you just don't want to socialize with anyone. And I know for myself, I, I have this cough, which I don't know if I'll get right now the speaking, but uh, I just haven't been able to shake. And I actually think it goes all the way back to September that I've been wrestling with this cough. But all of this just led me to this question, is this as good as it gets? just getting by, sitting there thinking, is it just, do I get to a point where Landon and Kinsley are a few years older and then it gets easier? Or is it just that you have to reach a different milestone and then it settles down? And I, I don't think that that's the case. Sometimes we go to our jobs and we, we start with this desire to make a difference. And then it ends up we get into this rut and we're just going through the motions, and we're just trying to get by, make it till the weekend. We come home, we try and make time for our families, but our energy seems so low that we're just trying to get by and do the basic tasks. And our to-do lists are just so overwhelming that we're trying to just do the fewest things possible and the easiest tasks possible, and get by without doing the rest while it just continues to pile up. It actually reminds me of a funny comment my mother-in-law made almost two years ago now. I forgot to paint this one section in our master bedroom beside the light switch. And she said, that's going to take you a year and a half to paint. And it bugged me so much that she would make that comment. And it's still not painted two years later. So she was right. <laughs> But we learn this art of getting by. 
And the question becomes, is this as good as it gets? And deep down, we're longing for more, and we know that there's got to be more. There must be more. But where is it? What is it? How do, how do we get there? And this is the question we're going to wrestle with for the next five weeks. Is this as good as it gets? And if the answer, which I believe we all know deep down, is no, then how does it get better? What changes, what shifts can we make to start living the best life now? You see, people don't just want to know what's true. They want to know what's real. In other words, we want to experience it. It's one thing to know, yeah, it's going to get better, but okay, I want to experience this then. How is it going to get better? And when several of us were meeting as a core group and praying and dreaming and discerning what this was going to become, the Well Community Church, we agreed upon five core values. And we wanted these values to be embedded in our DNA as a church. They're acceptance, authenticity, community, generosity, and rest. And I believe it's these five values that help us shift our attitude in order to transform our lives, our families, and our world. Our desire here at The Well is to be a safe place for people to investigate what we're all about, who we are, spiritual issues, and who Jesus is, all without the pressure of having to look, act, or talk a certain way. It's a place where we want you to be yourself. It's a place where we want your friends and family to feel welcomed and valued, included from the moment that they walk in these doors, no matter who they are or where they're coming from. And we want it to be such a safe place that you don't have to kind of give the disclaimer to your friends and family before they walk in the doors of all the little idiosyncrasies that we might have. But I read this article the other day with, that was talking about the two reasons that someone first comes to a church, whether they're a believer or not. One of the reasons is because of a specific series. It's something that just meets their need, whether it's time management, money management, uh, parenting, dealing with grief and loss. There's just something that kind of resonates, and they think, I need to hear that. But the number one reason is through a personal invite. It's someone saying, hey, I want you to come here. And in fact, as I was praying through this series that we're starting, I had a few different thoughts and directions of where I wanted to go, what I might want to emphasize. And I actually called up a good friend of mine from BC, and she isn't a believer. And I said, here's a few things that I'm wanting to go through. And what jumps out at you? And what struck her the most was this, getting by. Does it get better than this? You see, Christian or not, we all tend to struggle with the same issues. As believers, we know there's a hope. We know there's more. But people don't want to just know what's true. They want to know what's real. So the question that we have to wrestle with is how do we help people experience it? How do we help people experience acceptance, authenticity, community, generosity, and rest? And I always thought that 
rest was an oxymoron with church planting because you have fewer people and you're trying to get a lot done. But we'll tap into that and see how that shift can help us live our best life yet. But I believe it begins by shifting the attitudes, inviting our friends and family into a safe place where you know they'll be welcomed, they'll be loved, and they'll be accepted. So the first attitude shift we're going to look at tonight is acceptance. Now, a common reaction I got when I was telling people about our values and, and I brought up the value of acceptance is, is often one of shock. It's kind of a drop, drop jaw, like, whoa, acceptance? What, what does that mean was the question that always followed it up. And I'll admit that I recognize that acceptance is a bit of a buzzword nowadays. But I believe that we need to accept people for who they are as they are. And what I mean by that is that we are all people made in the image of God, and we are all loved. So I want us to look at an example of Jesus from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 2, verses 13 to 17. So Jesus went out beside the lake again. The whole crowd came to him, and he began to teach them. As he continued along, he saw Levi, Alphaeus' son, sitting at a kiosk for collecting ta taxes. Jesus said to him, follow me. Levi got up and followed him. Jesus sat down to eat at Levi's house. Many tax collectors and sinners were eating with Jesus and his disciples. Indeed, many of them had become his followers. When some of the legal experts from among the Pharisees saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why is he eating with sinners and tax collectors? When Jesus heard it, he said to them, healthy people don't need a doctor. Sick people do. I didn't come to call righteous people, but sinners. You see, what I find shocking is how often we as followers of Jesus fall into the same trap as the legal experts here. We, we want to define acceptance. We, we want to know what it means. Our, our walls automatically go up when we hear that one of our values is acceptance. But I believe it's because we've been taught to view the world in dualistic terms. Terms in which there are good people and bad people. Whereas there's sinners and there's saints. Where there's us and then there's them. But Jesus wants none of that. Jesus blasts to pieces our biases and labels with the declaration that God is for people. All people. He extends grace and compassion to everyone. You see, Levi, who's actually also known as Matthew, the author of the Gospel of Matthew, he would not have been a well-liked person, especially among the Jews, even though he was Jewish. You see, He's sitting there, getting by, doing his thing. He's collecting taxes. Now, Capernaum, where we know he was collecting taxes, is the place where he worked, and it would have been a lucrative position because there was a lot of farming happening around. There's, it's a crossroad, so there's people traveling through. But being a tax collector, people didn't like you very much. It's kind of like being a parking attendant nowadays. Have you ever seen the show Parking Wars, 
where these poor parking attendants, bylaw enforcement officers go through and they're giving people tickets for parking in the wrong spot. And these people are just screaming at them, saying, I was only here for a minute and giving their sob story of why they shouldn't get a ticket. And I actually can relate to it. I remember down on downtown Hamilton one day, there was a parking spot and I had no change for the meter. And I'm like, I'm just running in, getting a check and running back out. By the time I got out, there was a ticket. I'm like, are you kidding me? Like, was he writing the ticket as I was pulling up? And it's funny because <coughs> he's just doing his job or she's just doing her job. But I got so upset by it. So that's kind of the position that Matthew here, Levi here, is dealing with. He's a tax collector. This is how people felt about tax collectors. But it was also considered corrupt, or at the very least, it was perceived to be corrupt. Because what also would happen back then is they would take more than they actually needed. And then they would pocket the extra for themselves. So say, for example, we have Eugene, who's the Roman emperor, and he declares that, okay, I want a $10 tax. So then he goes to the next guy in command, Chris, and says, I want 10 bucks. So Chris goes back over to Trevor and says, okay, well, I want 15 bucks. And it goes down to the little guy who then is plowing his field, is working hard, and he has to give away almost everything he's got in order to pay the pockets of everyone going up the chain. And we're not talking about a tax collector where we get our government letter in the mail and says our taxes are increasing. We're talking about a boot to the neck where it's like, you owe us this money. So there was a, this, this chain of corruption that was happening. And to be a Jewish tax collector was even worse because you were considered to be a Roman sympathizer. You see, the, the Jewish people, the, their view was that they were under this Roman oppression. So to be a Jewish tax collector then, you're sympathizing with the government. You're putting the government before God. And rabbinic sources equate Jewish tax collectors with robbers. So therefore, at the end of the day, this guy Levi or Matthew was equal to a robber. He was equal to a sinner. And here comes Jesus doing what he does best. He turns our world upside down and revolutionizes how we see and understand God. Because you see, what I love here is how Jesus almost always does the exact opposite of what religious people think he should do. He did it back then and he still does it today. <coughs> Jesus walks over to a tax collector and invites him to follow me. Not only are the religious Pharisees upset that he's about to go to this party with Levi. Jesus is inviting him to become a disciple. And Levi drops everything and follows Jesus. You have this Jewish rabbi inviting a tax collector, a sinner, to be part of his inner group, to be a follower of Jesus, to be a disciple of Jesus. So of course the religious experts were upset. Can you just imagine if we went to the the crooked business guy on the corner, and we said, he's going to be one of the leaders in our church. 
Bells and whistles would go off like crazy. But this is what Jesus is choosing to do. Tax collectors and sinners were excluded from the religious activities. So Jesus' table fellowship with other tax collectors is especially scandalous because the meal was even thought to have been purchased using proceeds that were gained from unethical taxation. So the money that Levi's collecting and throwing the party with is actually the extra money that's been pocketed is how it would have been viewed. But there's another element to this story that I want to touch on, and it's the emphasis on sinners. There's kind of this breakdown between tax collector and sinners, and that just kept jumping out to me. Because the Pharisees are appalled that Jesus is eating and drinking with sinners. And Jesus himself says that he's not come for the righteous. He's come for sinners. So the question has to be asked, what's a sinner? And hearing that word alone probably brings up some kind of image in your mind. I know for me, it it brings up my, my upbringing and the do's and don'ts list automatically. Because it provokes this dualistic response of us and them. Sinner, oh, that's them. I, I'm, I'm off the hook for that now. But if I were to ask you to define the word sin, just think about how you would answer that. My guess is that most of us would say something like, sin is when we break God's laws, or sin is disobeying God or when we do something that makes God angry. And while these sound accurate, they don't tell the whole story. A theologian, Cornelius Plantinga Jr., describes sin this way. Sin is culpable disturbance of shalom. Now that's quite a mouthful. Sin is culpable disturbance of shalom. So I'm going to break down the three words, shalom, disturbance, and culpable. So shalom is the Hebrew word for peace. Wholeness, health, blessing. Shalom is the harmony God intends for the world. Shalom is how God wants things to be. Shalom is peace with yourself, with your neighbor, with the world, with God. Disturbance. Things aren't how they're supposed to be, are they? No matter what faith background, belief system, religion, nationality you're from, we all have this sense within us that things aren't right in the world. There's some injustice. From environmental degradation to domestic violence to Wall Street corruption to the petty little ways, we disrespect each other. This world isn't everything it could be. Inculpable. Guilt, responsibility, ownership. Culpable is any way that we've contributed to the disturbance of shalom we see all around us. So long story short, is sin is anything we do to disrupt the peace and harmony God desires for the world. And when we understand, or when we only understand sin primarily in terms of breaking or violating or disobeying, there's no larger context to place it in. There's only what you did or you didn't do. And then there's God's anger or wrath or displeasure with you. But when we place it in this larger context of of the good, the peace, the shalom 
that we all want for the world, then it starts to make way more sense. Of course I'm guilty of disturbing Shalom. Is there anyone who wouldn't own up to that? You see, Genesis 1 and 2 starts with the creation narrative, and everything is good. And the fall and sin enters in chapter 3, but we like to usually hit people over the head with chapter 3 right off the bat. You're a sinner. You need to be saved. And most people are thinking, what are you talking about? What do I need to be saved from? Sin is anything we do to disrupt the peace and harmony God desires for the world. But what's more is what we find in the Bible is that there's only one kind of sin. The sin that God has forgiven in Jesus Christ. There's no other kind. So we do what we can to make amends with whoever we've sinned against, trusting that the only kind of sin there is is forgiven sin. In the Bible, sin, isn't, er, sin is the middle word about you. And what I mean by that is the first word is that you're created in the image of God, crowned with glory and honor, a child of the divine, that is who you are. That's the first word about you. The second word is the honest, unvarnished truth about how we all fall short. We all sin. We all disrupt the shalom that God intends for all things. But the third word is the continual insistence that the last word hasn't been spoken about you and your sin that all sins have been forgiven in Christ, that we are loved and restored, redeemed, reconciled, and renewed. That's what the writers return to again and again and again. So let's get back to acceptance. I want to state this as clearly as possible. It's one of my favorite quotes, and it comes from Bruxy Cavey of The Meeting House. And he says, Acceptance is not agreement. When we confuse the two, we withhold acceptance in order to show disagreement. Jesus shows us a better way. Acceptance is not agreement. So what he's saying is we push people away when we mix those two up and we equate them. We push people away in order to show that we disagree. But as soon as you push people away, how do you connect with them? How do you have a relationship with them? How do you have a party with them? How do you tell them the good news of Jesus? Jesus models for us how to accept people for who they are, as they are, where they are. And it's as we continue to encounter the person of Jesus in our lives that he will change us, that he will transform us. It's not going to be anything I can do as a pastor or that you can do as a mom or dad or friend or neighbor. Only through the power and presence of Jesus will lives be changed. Will our community be transformed. It's a continual process of learning and growing, but it starts with acceptance. So what can we do to show our acceptance? I believe one skill every believer has to develop is the discipleship skill of throwing a great party. You didn't see that one coming. We've got to learn how to party 
and be some of the best partiers that there can be. And actually, if you want more information on this, I have a book that I bought our core group early on, um, something about like the theology of party or how to throw a party. And it's by a, by a church planter who realized the only way I'm going to connect with my neighbors who are in my neighborhood is by throwing a party for them to come to. And I want to be the best that there can be. So he kind of outlines what to do and what not to do. The reason we need to learn how to throw a great party is because I think we tend to suck at engaging the world with a good news life. We, we like to, again, look at it in these dualistic views, and we have our life and our family and neighbors, and then we have church, and, and we like to keep them separate. Our tendency is to determine who we're not, who we're not going to be, who we're not going to associate with, and then we build up walls around us to protect ourselves from them. And I don't know how many times... I've even been caught in the same thing, is we want to make sure we don't get ourselves in in these sticky situations, so we decide, okay, I'm not going to be these people, or I'm not going to do this. But what if we make the shift toward acceptance and operate it out of who we are, the essentials of who we are? You can still stand firm in your belief that Jesus is the Son of God. He, He lived and died and rose again. But as we operate out of this place of being, there's no longer walls keeping people at a distance. But it empowers us to lean in, to move closer, to get to know people where they're at. We can lean into people. We can associate with people because of who we are. This is why acceptance matters. This is how God is going to change lives and transform communities by breaking down our walls, and by building bridges. It's going to be through personal invitation into your homes, by throwing the party, in, it's personal invitation into church. That's going to reach and impact people in our community. Again, people don't just want to know what's true. They want to know what's real. So let people into your life. Because you know what? People can debate theology, but they can't argue with what Jesus has done in your life. But don't miss this. It's hard to reach a world you don't love or you don't even know. Jesus didn't come to call righteous people, but sinners. Well, that's me. Let's go out there and bring the good news to the world. Heavenly Father, God, I just pray that you open our hearts so that we will learn how to open our homes. I pray that our rooms will be filled with friends, laughter, warmth, and cheer, and that the food that we share will fill hearts and change souls. God, it's hard to reach a world that we don't love, that we don't know. And sometimes we get so busy doing church, being church, focusing on our individual relationship with you, 
that we actually then take a look around and realize we don't even know anyone that doesn't know you. God, I pray that that won't be us. I pray that you will show us uh, neighbors, friends, coworkers who are in need of you and empower us by your Holy Spirit to, like Angela said, be the good news and be the light in a dark world. In your name we pray, amen. And I just